Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Our uh, scripture for this morning comes from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. That's where we will be, and I'm going to read our text for us. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, in 1505, a lonely traveler was nearing the German village of Stoddernheim when a vicious thunderstorm came upon him. Lightning struck near him, and it terrified him, and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. In other words, God save my life, and I will become a monk. For this man, his name was Martin Luther, the first thing he thought about God was that God was trying to murder him through lightning. He lived a terrified, anxious life. He did everything he could to try to make himself at peace with God. He tried to be as moral as he could, keep as many rules as he could, pray as much as he could. And if God still was going to strike him with lightning, he tried to bargain with God in order to become a monk. But the way Bob Kellerman writes, this is how Martin Luther lived his life. He inhabited a world where people thought a threatening God kept a suspicious eye on every human act, and where the religious venture taught them to be consumed by the threats of damnation. Luther was an anxious, fearful, lonely man. And almost any sociologist would say those are three words that describe our current culture. We are anxious, we are afraid, And we are increasingly lonely. Fast forward towards the end of Luther's life. And he was teaching what some considered to be a new doctrine. Although what you'll find out through the course of this series is it was not a new doctrine. But it ruffled the feathers of the religious leaders of the day. And they were trying him for heresy. So Luther had to go to another town. And he was to be tried where the end result might not just be excommunication but execution. Luther going to this town, though, he had a a follower of his who was dying and on her deathbed, and she was fearful and anxious to die and wondered, would God meet her in paradise? She was fearful, anxious, and alone, and so she invited Luther to visit her on her deathbed. And Luther, on the way to the trial, where he was possibly going to be condemned to death, stops to to care pastorally for this woman who is dying and he communicates to her you have nothing to fear god has made you right 
with himself through Jesus. He loves you. He is your father. Be at peace. She's moved and she dies in peace. And Luther goes on to face the trial for his life. Which raises the question, what makes Martin Luther go from a man who's convinced God is trying to murder him by lightning to someone who may about to be executed and yet on his way to potentially his own execution stops to distribute peace to a dying woman? What happened? The answer is Galatians. Luther's encounter with this book freed him from his fear, anxiety, and loneliness before the Father into a life of service and freedom because of the gospel. And so if you want to live a free life, you need to understand what Luther saw and understood in this book. That what does it mean to live free? Because Galatians freed him and it can free you. So what does it mean to live free? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next 10 weeks together through this book. And this morning we're going to start with a few, a few points that really summarize the whole of the book of Galatians. Which is to live free, you need rescued, you need a gospel, and you need to embrace servanthood. I said that right. You need a gospel, you need rescue, and you need, actually the, the text actually says you need to embrace slavery. But that's probably a little too strong for us this morning. So first, to live free, we need rescued. Now I'm going to bet this is probably the point that needs the least amount of convincing because we, we live in a world that knows we need rescued. That's why there is a new superhero movie that comes out like every other week. Now I'm a little skeptical and cynical, so I think... If these superheroes were so good at what they're doing, why do vi- like new villains keep popping up every other week? There are like 300 Marvel movies at this point. They're failing at their job if there are so many villains, and yet we keep paying out money. We find it completely believable that there are an endless string of villains for these superheroes to attack because we live in a world where we know we need rescue. There's something deeply broken in this world. We know we need rescued. So the question is, well, what do we need rescued from? And there's a lot of ways the Bible answers that question, but Galatians narrows into one. And most commentators would say, if you want to know what the entire book of Galatians is about, it's chapter 5, verse 1. That's like Paul's summary verse of everything he's saying in Galatians is Galatians 5, 1. He says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says we need rescued because we need to live a free life. And almost no one is living a free life. We're rescued for freedom. Which raises the question, well, what is freedom? It's the only American value, but how we define that word means everything. And if I had to define the way I think our culture would define freedom, it's this. The free life is the construction of a world of our own. To our own taste, to follow our own desires. Freedom is a life with no constraints. Where I am free to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But there's a problem with this view of freedom. 
freedom, a life free of constraints. One, it means that you will avoid commitment to other people or places. It's why in our own culture, commitments to communal organizations or the family, commitment to a spouse is rapidly declining. Divorce rates skyrocketing, involvement in community uh, decreasing at alarming rates. We avoid commitment. We don't want to be tied down with someone who might inhibit what we want to do and how we want to do it. We have little time for community. In 1990, the average American, uh, 50% of the average adult had more than five close friends in their life. Today, just 30 years later, that number is 25%. We have less time for people, because who has time for people when the latest Marvel movie is on Netflix? And I can watch it by myself without people that might annoy me. We have little time for communion, community. And then third, we reject all authority. Anyone that makes an authoritative claim in our life, we say no. Now, the most shallow example of this is the increasing immaturity of parents at youth sports. Where if a referee makes a call a parent doesn't like, an authority figure, they will scream obscenities in front of children. And we have friends who had a hockey tournament in South Bend a couple weeks ago, and a parent had to be escorted out of the arena because the way they responded to a referee's call. I don't have to, to respect any authority I don't like. To live a life where you are free to do what you want to your own taste means you will not commit to other people or things. You will have little time for community and you will reject all authority. And that's one reason increasing like why sociologists are saying we are anxious as a culture. We are afraid because we don't know anyone. So we're just... We see everyone with suspicion. We're afraid of everyone. And we're alone. Now this might be the point in the sermon where you think, and this is where we say, well, it's a good thing no Christian views freedom this way. Not so much. How do Christians view freedom? Well, Christian Smith, a sociologist from Notre Dame, who did a lengthy study of what Christians believe in my age group. So he did this long study in the late 90s, early 2000s to say, what do teenagers believe about the Bible and while, or about Christianity? And while we might say, well, that's what the young folk think. Well, we were taught by somebody. And he says, Christian Smith says, he would define Christian belief in America like this. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. And I could say that's why a lot of my, people my age have fled the church Because there are a lot of easier places to feel happy about yourself or good about yourself than church. But it goes further. It's not just that we define the free life as I get to do what I want to be happy. Our view of spiritual freedom has been been twisted. So Harold Bloom, non-Christian literary critic, wrote this about Christians. He said, there are tens of millions of Christians who obsessive idea of spiritual freedom violates the normative basis of historical Christianity, though they are incapable of realizing how little they share of what was once considered a Christian doctrine. What he's saying is our view of freedom has so few ties to what Christianity actually teaches, we, we don't even see it. That if we're going to understand Galatians, I think we have to first understand how we have been malformed to understand what the free life is. 
The free life is not I get to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But I've seen that vision of freedom in the church. For example, uh, when I was in college, I, uh, first church I went to was a church where I got to play drums every Sunday. I'm a drummer, which means uh, Psalm 98 is my favorite psalm. Psalm 98 says, make a joyful noise unto all the earth. Make a loud noise. So next time you're like, music was too loud. Hey, it's Psalm 98. We're just trying to live into the Bible. That's all we're doing. <laughs> Rejoice and sing praise, right? That, make a loud noise. And I made a loud noise at that church for a year. The music was very, very loud. But then my sophomore year of college, I, I took a job as a part-time youth pastor in a church where the only musical instrument used on Sunday morning was a piano. It was very different. And at first it was really hard. I like loud noises. There were no loud noises. But over time, what I began to experience was that I could worship God in a music, musical style I did not connect with. How many Christians in the church in America today strive hard to worship in a musical style they do not connect with or just leave the church to find the musical style they connect with? That is freedom in the American sense. I will go to a church that fits my own tastes, that gives me my own drive, my own desires, period. And so we end up with little commitment to our churches. We shop around until we find the right one. And as long as they may make us happy, we stay there. And then when they don't, we move on to someone else that can fulfill our desires the way we want them to be fulfilled. The result is no commitment, no community, just like the world. We need rescued from this vision of freedom because it's not actually freeing to get whatever you want, however you want it, to create a world to your own desires is not freedom. It's slavery. And we'll unpack that through the course of this series. So listen, there's a lot of things we need rescued from, and Galatians will hit all of them. Not just, it's not just freedom. It's a number of things. But in America in 2022, we need rescued from an unbiblical vision of freedom to the vision of freedom we have in Galatians. So that's first. To live free, you need rescued. Second, to live free, you need a gospel. Now, gospel is a word, it just sounds religious, but it originally wasn't a religious word. It just means good news. So it was used like this. Let's say, let's say our enemies to the north from the state of Michigan saw the beautiful bounty of the land of Indiana and decided to invade. They want to annex Porter County into Michigan because they see how incredible this place is. And they invade, and, and those of us, we take up arms against the state of Michigan, the encroaching threats, the danger we feel, and we defeat them, and they have to go back to Michigan. Well, then what we would announce is a gospel. We have good news. Michigan has been repelled back to their own states. You can live in freedom. What's important is it's an, it's an announcement about what has happened it's not advice about how you are supposed to live. When we say gospel, what we're saying is something has happened irrelevant to your actions 
that has been done for you that now you get to live in light of. The gospel is an announcement. And I think verses 3 and 4 are a wonderful summary of the gospel. Hear them again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know much you have to do in those two verses? Nothing. This is an announcement about what has been done for you, not a list of expectations if you're going to take up life with God. The gospel's an announcement, and it's an announcement about a lot of things, but I'm going to name four from the text. First, the gospel is an announcement of grace. To the churches of Galatians, grace to you. The gospel is an announcement of grace. Grace is a gift. And a gift is something given without having been merited. Whatever the gospel is, it's not something you've merited through your life, efforts, or works. It's a gift. And it's why Martin Luther, when he wrote a a commentary on Galatians to explain how that book changed his life, he writes this about the grace of the gospel. What? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But be found in him who of God has made unto us our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. This morning, I'm here to declare to you, if you want to be right with God, you don't have to do anything. You can't merit that. Period. You have to respond in faith, yes, but that's not a work. That's a gift. The gospel is an announcement of grace, first. But second, the gospel is an announcement of peace. So I just said something that probably made people uncomfortable. To receive the gospel, you don't have to do anything. You're like, wait, yes, Yes, and the reason we think, yes, I do, is because we know we're not at peace with God. If we were to examine our lives the way Martin Luther examined his life, we would find much in there that would mean we can't just walk into the presence of God and speak to him. We're not at peace with God. We have failures. We have sins. We have brokenness in us. And we walk in knowing those things. And so that's why this is an announcement about peace with us. And I love that first sentence. I'm seriously considering starting every sermon with this sentence because I love this line so much. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like That's all we're doing every Sunday. Whatever, whatever happened out there, I have an announcement for you. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be at peace with God. Not because you merited it or you lived a good week this week. Irrespective of how you live this week, you can be at peace with God. So every Sunday when people stroll in here, if you're a mom this week, young mom, maybe kids, you're like, I'm failing at all accounts in parenthood. I don't know how to do this. I'm struggling And when you walk into church, what you should hear is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If your world's chaotic, 
Maybe your kids have taken paths in life that you wish they hadn't taken, or things have happened to you, diagnosis that you wish would go away, but it hasn't. You walk in here, and we don't say, hey, listen, if there's a lightning storm, you better pray because God might get you. No, we say grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we got. And it frees us if we actually hear it. But that raises the question, well, how can we have that kind of confidence? Well, the gospel is not just an announcement of grace and peace. It's an announcement of substitution. So we read, grace and peace to you from our, Lord, our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Paul's saying there was an exchange in place. So when Luther examined his life, he knew, I'm guilty before God. And what the gospel says is there was an exchange that happened where Jesus took our place of guilt and we were given his place of innocence. So God the judge looks over our life, we're guilty as charged. And Jesus substitutes himself, he gives himself for our sins, takes the place of guilt, and then instead of hearing guilty like we should, we hear not guilty. That's what substitution means. Which is why when you pray, you don't have to run, wonder, have I lived a good enough life this week for God to hear me? The answer is no, and you never will. And if you ever think you did live a good life, so God now can't hear, you've got bigger problems now. Substitution. That's why Luther asked the question, what? Have we then nothing to do? No. Jesus has done it. He was put in your place. So the verdict from the bench of God our judge is not lightning. That was pretty good. That's great timing. We just needed a flash of light and it would have been... Had baptisms after that. Um, we have nothing to do. No, nothing. The pronouncement of not guilty has come from the bench. But that's where a lot of people stop with the gospel. You're not guilty. Congratulations, you go off. Which would be good, but you were just on trial. The judge pronounced you not guilty. Well, what now? And the gospel is not just an announcement of substitution. It's an announcement from our Father. Three times in these five verses... God the Father. Verse 3, God our Father. Verse 4, God and, our God and Father. That as Bob Kellerman writes in his book about Martin Luther, that Luther understood this. This is a part of what freed him. Not just that he thought, oh, I'm not guilty anymore, but God is not only the judge who forgives me, he is my Father who welcomes me. Out of his grace love, God the Father sent his Son to die for me. And with the barrier of sin demolished, Nothing stands between me and my heavenly Father. God is calling you home. The Father is calling you home. It's the good news of the gospel. It's not just that you're not guilty. It's that the Father has run out to meet you. The gospel is an announcement of grace, of peace, of substitution, and of our Father. We need a gospel, and that is the gospel. And we'll talk more about that next week. But third and finally, and this is where points one and two converge, and we have some tension. To live a free life, you must embrace a servant's life. 
And I thought this week to myself, when is the time I felt the most free? The most free. And there's a lot of ways I could answer that, but the one that kept coming back to my, my mind is this past summer, uh, I had a sabbatical from my previous job, so I had three months off, and one of the things my wife and I did was we spent seven days together um, in the be- on the beach in California. And one of those days, when we were in California, I ran 14 miles, a half marathon basically, on the beach for fun <laughs> by myself. And I, it was amazing. I was in really good shape, and so I was able to run faster. I, I did my best time. There's mountains. There's ocean. I'm just kind of freed of all responsibilities. But being able to run that far and that fast was one of the most freeing experiences of my life. And yet you laughed because it's like that sounds like a weird person. Running a long distance on vacation for fun. Why would you do that? And the reality is it took a lot of, a lot of constraint to get to that moment. Lots of early mornings getting up and running. Lots of self-discipline with what I put into my body in terms of what I ate. There's a lot of, a lot of constraint to get to that moment of freedom. And we all know that. We all know freedom doesn't actually mean I get whatever I want when I want. We all know freedom requires constraint, and yet we don't really believe that. We actually are trying to cast off all constraints, cast off anything that might limit or conform me into something I don't want to be a part of. And yet let me illustrate this in, in one more way. I did this last week or a couple weeks ago. I'm going to do it again. I should have pulled up my cell phone. It's, it's in my office still, but our cell phones are the most freeing devices in the history of mankind, arguably. You can call anybody, you can watch any, anything, you can find out any piece of information. You have access to the entire world in your pocket at all times. So here's the question, has that made us more free as people? Patrick Deneen in Why Liberalism Fails, he writes this about our phones. The computer in every person's pocket has been shown to change the structure of our minds turning us into different creatures, conforming us to the demands and nature of a technology that is supposed to allow expression of our true selves. The phone enables us to create a world to our own tastes, our own desires. Going on. Um, How many of us, though, can sit for an hour reading a book or simply thinking or meditating without an addict's longing for just a hit of the cell phone? That craving that won't allow us to think or concentrate or reflect until we've had our hit. So this device, which gives us unlimited freedom, is actually changing us into addicts. And that's where all unlimited freedom leads. Is addiction. Is loneliness. Is fear. And that's why Paul says what he says in Galatians 5. One, why he says, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of what Jesus has done for us, chapter 5, verse 1, it's for freedom. Christ has set us free. But then he says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, he means something more specific in Galatians, which we'll get to next week. But what I want to say this morning to our cultural context is the gospel frees us from a false vision of American freedom, which is do whatever you want, whenever you want, which is actually a yoke of slavery. Whether it's the cell phone, whether it's whatever else we can give our lives to so that we don't have to have the constraints of other people confining our freedom. 
That's a false gospel. So don't submit again to that yoke of slavery. But it raises the question, what does the gospel free us into? And Paul says this, and this is fascinating what he does. So verse 1, freedom Christ has set us free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then verse 13, he tells us what he means by a life of freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now first, verse 13 in the message, Eugene Peterson captures a little bit better what Paul uh, is, means here. Eugene Peterson translates that. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom to do whatever you want and destroy your freedom. Which is a sentence that describes our current cultural moment. We're using our freedom to destroy our freedom. We're using our freedom to do whatever we want to destroy what actually frees us. But here's what's more interesting. So Paul in verse 1 says, do not submit a yoke again, uh, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Then verse 13 he says, use your freedom through love to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do not use your opportunity, or your freedom as an opportunity to do what you want, but through love through loving your neighbor as yourself, serve one another. Now here's what's fun. The word serve in verse 13 is from the Greek word, word group doulos, which means slave. It's the same word in verse 1 when Paul says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't be a doulos, Paul says. So here's what he's saying. He's basically contradicting, contradicting himself with tongue firmly in cheek. Be free, Paul says. Don't submit again to being a doulos, a slave. So that, verse 13, you can become a doulos to other people. True freedom is becoming a servant, a slave to your neighbor. True freedom is denying the world you want to create to your own desires and looking at your neighbor and saying, what world do you want? How can I serve you? How can I lift you higher? And we're going to talk a lot about that, but we just got to stop there because almost none of us in this room believe that. The true freedom does not come from your next vacation. It doesn't come if the right person is elected into office. It does not come if you're free of the constraints from other people. That's not freedom. Freedom is welcoming the constraints other people bring into your life because the only way you can love your neighbor is to become their doulos, their slave, their servants. So my question is, who did you serve this week? Who did you willingly lower yourself that another might be lifted up? Because that's the freedom of the gospel. That's the free life. That's Martin Luther at the end of his days, who, though he might die soon, his first reaction is to go love and serve a dying woman. Who did you serve this week? Who did you get lower than? See, our culture says, take what you can from this world to get happy. The gospel says, give all that you have to find your freedom. But I'm not naive. No one, I, no one believes this, including me. So I'm going to end with two stories to hopefully get your heart to where maybe one day we might believe this. Story one. A few weeks ago, we were celebrating my daughter's third birthday. 
And uh, someone in this church had given us this really nice ceramic tea playset. And so we gave it to her for her birthday, this really robust ceramic tea playset. So it's her birthday. She's the center of attention. Ironically, it was also my dad. My dad's birthday was actually that day, but no one paid attention to him. It was only Eden. She, uh, she has this tea set out, and, and she opens it. She just, she loves it. And what does she do immediately? She lines up all the pieces on, our, um, on an end table, and then she takes, she puts the cups on the saucer. She even knows that. I have no idea how she knows that, but she knows that. She puts the cup on the saucer, and she gives one to me, one to my wife, one to my parents. And she takes the tea kettle. She, serves, she pours out the tea, and she brings it to us. We're, we're having a pretend tea party at my daughter's birthday party, and she's the one serving us. I'm just like, girl, like, birthdays, it's your day. We serve you. It's about you. Open some more presents. What can you get? How can you milk out of us everything you can milk out of us for this? That's birthday, man. And what's she doing? Well, she's three. She hasn't yet learned what all you and I have learned, which is the, the good life is to take from everybody else. To where if someone else puts a constraint on it, you just, abate, you just leave the community when they do something you don't like. Rather than constrain your freedom to serve others, we all know the good life is to use others to get what we want, right? She hasn't learned that yet. So her instinct as a three-year-old is to serve. Story two, if you're still not there, I would ask you this. Have you ever been served by Jesus? The Son of God who literally had all freedom had every resource in the universe, universe disposable to him. He could have had whatever he wanted on this earth. He could have had the world to his own making, every desire fulfilled, every person on bended need before him. But instead, he became a slave for you, to rescue you. He was born into a family of total poverty, lived in a small corner of the universe that nobody even knew where it was. Even though he was this people's God, the long-awaited Messiah, he didn't overbear them. He came with open arms. Do to me what you will. Here's the truth. And he ended up on a cross for it. was murdered. The God of the universe was so committed to this vision of freedom, he was constrained to a cross, put into a tomb, all to rescue out of the shallow vision of my life is for me back into the freedom with which you and I were made for. And so when you see the Son of God serving you like that, becoming a slave for you, when you see the beauty and the power, the grace, the peace, the substitution, the heart of the Father, when you see all of that, how in the world do we say freedom is when I get mine? Now, when you see all that, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free to serve. Let's pray. Father, the good news of the gospel is that while no one, me included, served the way Jesus would have served if he were us this week, that's okay. There's grace, there's peace. There's the heart of the Father for us this morning. God, so meet us in that place that you would free us to live a free life like Jesus. In whose name that we pray, amen.
before we come into communion time. Let's uh, sing this again. Sunday. Uh, one of these. I actually have a couple of announcements. So you have plenty of time to go out and grab your communion elements. Um, so two two announcements before we, we move into a time of communion. Uh, one of the the survey results that was maybe more common than all the rest was a real desire within the Chesterton campus for more unity, especially between sacred grounds and the worship center. And so we've, we've been asking, what are some small steps we can take in that direction? And one of them, which I think has been good, which we did from the beginning of my time here, was to have a single preaching voice between both Sacred Ground and Worship Center, to move towards that. So if you come to church here on a Sunday, you hear the same sermon, whatever room that you're in. Um, the problem with that is the only way to do that currently is, is to have one place have video. And we want to move away from that. Well, the only way to move away from that is to change the service time structure that we have here. Um, so Greg and I did a very deep dive into attendance patterns at Sacred Ground and Worship Center. And how's that going? How can we get everything down to three services? And what we found was Sacred Ground currently is about, you can get about 300 people with 300 chairs in that room. And with kids and everyone at Sacred Ground, it's about 320 people on a Sunday. So we still need two services on Sacred Ground. What we found in the worship center, going back even pre-COVID times, is in this room you can get about 600 people, um, but the number here for worship has been much closer to about 420 people on a Sunday, which means we can get everyone between this service and the next service, which is actually much smaller than this service, into a single service in the worship center for at least the summer months. Um, and so what we're thinking is from May 15th to the end of July, we're going to have one 9.15 a.m. service here. And then reevaluate that decision at the end of July, depending on our summer attendance patterns here. So, starting Sunday, May 15th, we'll have a 9 a.m. Sacred Ground service. This service will move to 9.15. 
Although I want to invite you to continue coming at 9 a.m., have coffee with people, talk, yuck it up for 15, then come and worship. So 9.15, one 9.15 service here, and then one 10.45 service in sacred grounds after that. That allows us to have a stop for children's ministry so we can change over volunteers ahead of second service. It also gets us down from four services to three. So Sunday, May 15th, this service is 9.15, not 9 o'clock. So that's announcement one. Uh, the second announcement is uh, related to the unity question, which is I, I was asking the question, you know, we want more unity. If only there was a Christian practice that was designed specifically to union everyone in a common place around the table of Jesus where we're reminded we're sinners saved by grace. Right? If only we had a community practice to bring us into union together. Community, union. I feel like there's like three people in the room who know where I'm going with this. <laughs> we are starting today going to move to a weekly communion practice here. I don't know if you know this, the church practiced communion weekly until about 1500 A.D. And then the reason why we changed, or some folks changed, was for 1500 years the center of the worship service was the body and blood of Jesus, his table. What I just, what I finished my sermon talking about. That was, that's what mattered. Well, in 1500 A.D. or so, a guy said, actually, I think what really matters is my preaching. So they moved the communion table off to the side, and they put the pulpit in the middle of the room. And I don't believe that about church. I don't believe my preaching is the center of Liberty Bible Church. I think the table of Jesus is the center of Liberty Bible Church. And we want to make that true, not just in mind. We all agree with that. No one disagrees with that. I want to make that true in practice as well. Um, so here's the, the downside. For about three more weeks, we got to do communion this way. I know no one likes that. That's what we have to do. We're building out communion teams, and then we'll explain our way of doing communion once we have that infrastructure in place. But starting today, this is now a weekly practice. So with that, let's, let's do this together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathers disciples around. He took the bread. He broke it. He blessed it. He gave thanks for it. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. So take and eat. And Jesus took the cup, and after giving thanks, they passed it. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So take and drink. Let us pray. Father, with this meal we announce our only hope in life and death is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It is our grace, it is our peace, it is our forgiveness, it is our welcome home from the Father. God, make that true in our hearts, not just in our minds, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.